don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Welcome to Second Captain Saturday, folks. Only two contestants left to take a shot at this season's title. Oh, McDevitt here with Kieran Murphy. Hey, Murph. Hey, Owen. How's it going? At the height of Annie Mack's legendary career as a DJ on BBC Radio 1, record labels were known to delay announcing new releases <laughs> if it meant getting a premiere on her show. That's how big an effect it would have on their chances of creating a hit. When she took over her nightly programme from the towering figure of Zane Lowe in 2015, which was already one of the biggest gigs in British broadcasting, Mm -hmm. she actually increased the listenership to 1.75 million people. That number again, Murph, 1.75 million listeners. That's a lot of people. That's like the population of Dublin, isn't it? I mean, more? The population of her hometown, Dublin, indeed. And despite leaving radio a couple of years ago to become a best-selling author, she continues to draw the crowds to see her live sets. As anybody who tried to get a ticket to see her at the Guinness Storehouse on Culture Night will know, because the website apparently crashed within seconds of the tickets going (laughs) online this week. How quickly you can crash a website is always a fair indicator of the pulling power (laughs) of any live performer. Annie McManus is on with us today, and Murph, the most impressive part of Annie's career in a lot of ways. Maybe that she gave up that job as a BBC DJ with all mm. the prestige that goes with it and is now achieving great success as an author. Just finished reading this week, The Mess We're In. Uh, it's her new book uh, released this yeah. summer and it's so sharp. It just brilliantly evokes London in the early noughties. Uh, she writes with real sincerity, real hard. I just enjoyed it. I own the phrase I think I'm looking for here is it's in all good bookshops now. <laughs> I thought you were going to say unputdownable, Murphy. It is it, actually it is unputdownable. But I mean, I yeah, I, I yeah, just yeah. Did, I didn't want to you know over gild the lily. But no. it is. It's great. It's and it. She just has a beautiful uh, way about her own. Annie Mack is ready to take Enda Walsh on at the top of the second captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person leaderboard. And while there will only ever be one McCool, the Irish Wolfhound mascot, we have heard that Annie went one step further and actually played football on the sacred turf of Lansdowne Road. With only two guests to go, can you break down the latest standings, please, Kieran? Could have been a contender. Could have been somebody. Yes, on six of our eight contestants have received their scores in this year's race to be crowned our greatest non-sports person, sports person for 2023. Irish playwright and Wolfhound impersonator non Parai Enderwalsh <laughs> currently leads on 85 points and he's jealously guarding a slender one-point lead on Conan O'Brien in second. Glamour Magazine's global editor-in-chief Samantha Barry is third on 78 points and so it's all to play for as Annie Mack boldly takes the stage this afternoon. Now, the second captain's anorax out there will of course remember that it was at this late, late stage of 2022's race to the title that Kit Duvall grabbed hold of the lead and refused to let go. So there is yeah. precedent for a last gasp storming of the beaches. This thing's very much alive, people. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you know, some celebrity contestants ask me, Murph, they might say, why must you give me a score out of 100 based on my sporting achievements and my all-time sporting highlight? Why? Because it's my job, goddammit. Now shut up and listen to me eviscerate you on national radio. It's my life's calling on, and Annie Mack is next up. Tweet us at Second Captains, email editor at secondcaptains.com. Annie Mack is on the show, so you'd better believe we're going to raid her Spotify playlist for some banging tunes, starting off with this one from Talking Heads.
This must be the place by Talking Heads. It was good enough for Annie Mac to include on her summer Spotify playlist. It is good enough for us on Second Captains today. Over the course of a 17-year career at BBC Radio 1, she became one of the most beloved radio presenters in the UK with her Friday night dance show going out to over 1 million listeners and her weekday evening slot clocking in at somewhere closer to 2 million. She has segued seamlessly into a career as an author with the Sunday Times bestseller Mother Mother and the critically acclaimed The Mess We're In. After 20 years of playing the biggest clubs and festivals in the world, in June, she played in front of her largest crowd yet, over 80,000 Harry Styles superfans at Slane Castle. Having survived that bear pit, today she steps into an even more white-hot atmosphere as she competes to become our greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2023. Annie McManus, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you so much, guys. It's great to be here. It's great That's to have you on. the intro. Oh, well, there you go. Have you sealed yourself for a thorough examination of your sporting credentials today? I have, actually. I'm quite excited. I've never done an interview like regarding sport before, and I love mm. sport, so I'm, I'm mad to talk about it. Thank I'm going to go out on a limb and say you were probably spending a lot of time listening to music as a kid. So did you have any time to play sport as well? did, actually. I had a lot of time. I was always very uh, active and... Before I got into kind of, I suppose, what you call competitive sport, I was just always out, you know, in in our estate where I grew up in South Dublin. We had a little green down the road and I would just be out from morning to night playing normally football, actually, with all the local lads, climbing trees, um, just being feral, basically. (laughs) And um, that turned into a love of football. And when I was in primary school, I joined the football team um, and... Um, ended up playing with the boys team officially. Um, I don't remember ever feeling strange or, you know, uh, like like it was an odd thing or an anomaly that I was doing it. I was always allowed to kind of just be very much me as a kid. I didn't get pressured to go one way or another by my parents, which I'm really grateful for, actually. Is it true, Annie, that you played on the hallowed turf of Lansdowne Road itself? Yeah, so this was a big moment. So I actually had to go back and look at my diary from when I was 10 because I have been keeping diaries that long, Um, which is hilarious, by the way. So boring. My life is very boring. Um, But I basically got chosen along with two other girls in my school to represent, um, I don't know, the children of Ireland um, (laughs) upon this new league launching. So it was called the it was called the Forsh Mars School Soccer Skills Programme. And it was me and two other girls. We had to go to Lansdowne Road and we met Noel King, who was the coach of Ireland at oh, the time. Oh, yeah. Noel King, he's still around. He's still, he's still very much involved. He has been for decades. As yeah. Uh, as so coach. we had to kind of do, in front of the, the cameras, we had to kind of, you know, he did some drills with us and we were doing mm. keepy-uppies and headers and stuff and, and dribbling around around things. And um, yeah, got in all the papers. We were on Dempsey's Den. It was a big deal. What? I don't know if my face was, but my feet definitely were. <laughs> what did the reports say? You said you're you're reading your diary again this morning. What? Yeah. What so memories were shaping? Up? Yeah, go yes. for it. It says it was a case of away the girls as Lisa Benson, Tessa O'Neill, and Annie McManus showed off soccer skills yesterday that would put the boys to shame. The dazzling trio, lol, obviously only saying that because we're girls, uh, from Taney National School have signed up for a new training program under national coach Noel King. Hundreds of children from schools all around the country will take part in the course which has been organised by Mars and the Football Association of Irish Schools. That is absolutely brilliant. Such happy memories, I would imagine. They're golden. They're golden memories. 
So that's 10-year-old you. Did that excitement and those sporting diary entries featuring Noel King, did they start to ebb away into your teenage years or when did it start to... Well, I joined like a Protestant school, so there was no football (laughs) to be had. Um, It was rugby, it was hockey, and I just went ahead and played hockey because that's what you did. And um, I really liked hockey, actually. I got very into it and completely forgot about football and played for the first team all the way through school and pictures of us in the paper winning things with that team as well. I think I tried out for Leinster at one point. I was really oh, wow. into it. This is good stuff. We'll come back to your sporting life a little bit later on. But you obviously made your name in London, Annie. Was it always the plan, even when you were young, to get out of Ireland? I think it was. It wasn't because I really, really, when I was in, uh, when I was doing my leaving cert, I really wanted to do, I really wanted to go to Trinity and study drama. When I got into sixth year of of school, I got picked to be in the school play. And it kind of like, it was like, oh, maybe this is what I could do. Like, you know yourselves, when you're in school, there's a terrible pressure to feel like you have to know exactly what you're going to do when you grow up and you have to, you know, you know what you're going to study and it has to all lead in the right direction. And I didn't really have that. And when I realised how much I enjoyed acting, I thought, well, maybe this is it. So I'd never done any drama, any amateur theatre, anything like that. I'd done this one school play and then rocked up to the audition at Trinity. And it was really, you know, it was for people who'd done drama. You know, you had to you had to pretend to be a tree. Um, <laughs> and I was like, hey, what? how do you act being a tree? And, it, you know, all these people didn't even flinch. They were just going ahead and being trees. And I was like, this is I, I, I realised at that point I didn't really know what I thought was acting wasn't acting. And then I had had to learn a kind of monologue to then deliver. And I went into this room and it was these two kind of shadowy silhouettes at the end of a room. And this classic, you know, high pressure interview context. We can't even see their faces, just a voice from the from the darkness saying, go ahead. And um, I was doing the soliloquy at the end of Romeo and Juliet, where spoiler alert, she wakes up and finds Romeo dead. And I I. Uh, I just did the classic thing of freezing. I just completely froze. And I like I was like in this kind of panicked paralysis of not being able to remember my lines. And I just I was so cross with myself and I failed the audition. Um, I didn't know that I failed the audition until later. But that day I went home to my mom and in a very kind of teenage over dramatic way decided I was going to chop all my hair off. I had hair down to my, like all the way down to my bum, like really long hair. Yeah. And uh, I borrowed 20 pounds off my mom and went down to Peter Marks in Dundrum and got it cut like that short. Oh. Like, like Murph, as like your length. And, uh, and came home and my mum cried. I handed her my ponytail in a plastic bag. And um, yeah, was in retrospect highly dr- like a dramatic. Yeah, was just not that's dramatic amazing. enough. Yeah, it's great theater <laughs> and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should have done that at the, aud- audition, the audition, and maybe you that was the audition. You would have yeah, had a show. Yeah. I remember we had Rady Pete last week burying her basketball medal in the backyard. Yeah, this probably even. I loved. I loved that story. I just thought that was such a beautiful like emblematic story of her character that she would mm. be so ashamed to even begin to take credit for something that she didn't deserve. Like, how sweet is that? Yeah, yeah. Listen, you did. So, you, okay, you went from that failed audition, that miserable experience, but ultimately yeah. you ended up going to Queens in Belfast, right? Is that where you started plotting your career or was it less planned out than I'm making it sound there? Yeah, it kind of was, I suppose, but not until the final year. Uh, and that was more of a kind of how do I keep having as much fun 
as an adult mm. as I am right now. Um, and I knew I wasn't ready to get like a job that wasn't in. I was going to really try and make it doing what I wanted to do. I was going to have a go at it anyway. And I'd kind of done a very rudimentary equation of the things I loved, which was I knew I loved music. I had become obsessed with clubbing and dance music and, and kind of club culture. I was buying records. I had decks. I was learning how to mix. And then I just loved, I just knew I was an extrovert and loved talking to people and connecting with people. So I just did the, okay, if I put those two things together, you get music radio. And I discovered Radio One, BBC Radio One, upon being in Belfast. And I I kind of fallen in love with some characters on there and figured maybe that was, that could be the kind of North Star. That could be the plan. Mm. And I could at least try and aim for that. So I then moved to London and that was the kind of start of the, the, the seeking my fortune trail to getting to Radio One, yeah. Yeah, it it seems like nearly like a, a a magical thing that you go like a hundred miles up the road from Dublin to Belfast, you pick right. up a different radio frequency, and then all of a sudden, the the dream job for you kind of presents itself on a silver platter to you. A thing that you love listening to is also the thing that you want to do professionally. Yeah, it was because of a voice, really. This one woman's voice called Marianne Hobbs, who's still on BBC Radio. She presents a show on BBC Six Music. Um. I just couldn't get over how cool she was and how cool she sounded. And I couldn't get over the music she was playing. It was so unbelievably exciting to me. And I used to record the shows on mini disc. Remember that? Wow. I know Rady, Rady loved a mini disc too. <laughs> and, um, and try and seek out all this music, which of course was so much harder in those days. I don't, I, I, I don't know what it was about her that made me feel like I could do it. But I think a lot of it was just her being female because there wasn't that many female voices that were kind of music gatekeepers, I suppose, at the time. And I suppose hearing her allowed me to feel like I could maybe have a go myself. That term you use there, music gatekeepers, is interesting because really that's not overstating the case. In the UK, certainly, there has been traditionally a real cultural significance around that role of being a BBC DJ, right? Yeah, it felt like an enormous responsibility uh, at the time. And I came after some, you know, your John Peels, you know, I, I worked with him for a while and shared an office with him. My first show was before his and Zane Lowe was before me. It was it was a real scary, exhilarating experience. Um, but what I learned, I suppose, quickly is that the only way to succeed is to just try and stick as much as you can to who you are. But you had, you know, you had a lot of people who kind of put on a, a kind of certain timber in their voice or even like more of that, like a bigger character, a more exaggerated version of themselves. But I didn't do that. I I don't know why. I just I just I guess from the start, I figured out it was easier just to be myself. And it felt more real and more honest for me to be able to do it that way. How big a part of the appeal in those years was playing live, was going out and doing gigs and having that sort of connection with people that you referenced earlier. I hadn't seen that many women do it. I was more more just like if I could just get on the radio, that would be great. And then when I got a dance show, I was then kind of catapulted into doing gigs. So like because I had a, a name on Radio 1, people were booking me. Because I was a woman, I think there was a curiosity as to me being a dance DJ and put in front of audiences that were 
probably much bigger than I should have been <laughs> due to the fact that I was on Radio 1. So it was kind of like I had the skill set, but I didn't have the skill set in order of, of being a performer. And I suppose that was a bit that surprised me. And still, I still can't get my head around every day <laughs> when I DJ is the kind of absurdity of performing as a DJ, because you are just pressing buttons and and yes, you can dance. But if you're me and you're self-conscious as a dancer, it's it's that bit is the hardest bit was the hardest bit for me and still is the hardest bit for me. Just the sense of standing proud in front of thousands of people who are all staring at you and feeling comfortable in your skin and moving in a comfortable way because it's just so mortifying. <laughs> if I was playing a guitar or, you know, singing or something, but when you're DJing, you're just, I mean, there is stuff to do. I'm not hmm. negating the, you know, the art of DJing. Like there is plenty to do. And it's a lot of, you know, knobs hmm. to twiddle as such. And one would twiddle them more in that scenario when you're mortified because it's something to do. <laughs> but I, you know, I think at the start, I found that very difficult. I remember my boyfriend coming with me at some of the shows and just being like, would you just look up and smile? <laughs> and I would be so terrified because I would be so terrified of getting a mix wrong. I felt like I had a lot to prove. Mm. It was all down to experience and lack of it. And the more experienced I got, the more I, the more I really enjoyed it. Whatever about your kind of fears of the that kind of live atmosphere, it must be sort of euphoric to play a track to a huge crowd and then have your initial excitement amplified and then mirrored back at you by thousands of people who are just kind of enjoying the moment that you are creating for them. There is no feeling like the feeling of when you play a song at the the right song at the right time and there's this kind of alchemy in in the in the atmosphere in the room and there's a kind of ripple like it's an energy ripple that kind of comes through the crowd. It's the most amazing feeling and you become kind of addicted to that feeling actually. And it's easy to become, to allow that feeling to uh, dominate your motivations for when you DJ. So it's easy to go and play all the hits in order to get that feeling all the time. But you have to kind of, you ha there has to be a balance between that and then playing stuff that people haven't heard before and allowing them to hear it for the first time. And that can still happen with tunes they haven't heard before, but it's a lot easier to get with the bangers. Um, I've realized recently with regards to DJing and radio DJing, actually, that I think I am essentially a people pleaser. Like, and I think that that is a role that suits that job mm. because I want to make people happy and I want to be a conduit for joy. And music is the perfect way to do that. Not just joy. Like when you're on the radio, you can play songs that make people cry, but it's just a, an idea of being a conduit for some some sort of profound experience that people can have. And I think my amateur psychology, it, that is probably to do with being the youngest of a big family and being, you know, always being that person that like was comfortable in the role of lightening up a room, making people laugh, uh, trying to dissolve tension. So it kind of makes sense. I suppose I've gone that way. Um, I still can't believe my job. I still can't believe it. I still go out and DJ and I still I'm like, what is this? How did I end up here? <laughs> How lucky am I? Like, I'm so grateful for for what I've managed to hold on to, I suppose. Has it been a difficult transition with everything you've said there about your 
need to please people and what you get out of that. Has it been difficult to transition into becoming an author, doing more solitary work, not having those connections with people? You wrote a lovely piece in The Observer a while back about a loneliness that's crept in over recent times. Yeah, it was difficult. And I think the first book I wrote that you mentioned, Mother Mother, it was written amongst everything else happening. So it was it was very it was kind of time squeezed out of an already very busy, very social schedule. And then I realized how much I liked writing that. And I made more time to be a writer, left Radio One, as you know, and um, really tried to dedicate time into being a writer. And that's when it really hit home, like that I had managed to, you know, switch jobs from working with a really tight team on a daily radio show, being right in the kind of nucleus of connection that that sense of connection that sense of collective joy that you get from listening to something or experiencing something um on the radio and then i was just sat on my own trying to write a book and i really i realized that i really really missed people i yeah i, I guess i wrote that article after i mean it was a good while after but i needed that time to kind of really process how i felt and and also to kind of feel a little bit better and to have found a kind of not an answer as such, but some sort of way out because I didn't think I should just write a big article being like, I'm lonely. I needed to write an article saying I was lonely and this is how I've kind of feel like I can mm. live, you know, deal with it. So how, um, how, how did you deal with it? Well, weirdly, the book, The Mess We're In, is a lot of it set in an Irish bar in London. And I used... um my local Irish pub as a kind of template, I suppose, for that Irish bar. And I went in there and asked a lot of questions to the landlady, a lovely lady, um, and got to know her and then ended up going to the bar more frequently. And I didn't realise how much I needed when you took away all of the radio and all of that, a kind of a sense of belonging in London and because Radio 1 affords you such an identity. You're, it really gives you a status and a, you know, it gives you a, you're kind of in a gang. And then when you're out of that, I think that coupled with the fact that I was hitting 40. So you have this idea of kind of, who am I now, first of all, but secondly, I'm 40, you know, what have I done with my life? You know, you have this whole thing that happens when you reach these milestones where you're looking back at your life and you're thinking, where am I? What's the meaning? What should I be doing? Where should I be living? Um, and going to that pub really I can afforded me a sense of belonging, I suppose, where I felt like, OK, there's other people who are Irish in London. I am uh, part of this huge group of of people who have all left Ireland and have all settled here. And I don't know, it just made me feel a, a, a bit less alone, I suppose, in the way that any sort of finding of a community does. And what I've decided for my new book, which doesn't exist yet, apart from me thinking about how I want to write it is that whatever happens with it, like I want it to allow me to uh, meet people and connect with people like writing can do that. I mean, I had such a huge amount of people message me on behalf of that article um, saying they felt the same which then made me feel more connected, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I love the fact that you also emailed your friends to 
get their feelings on loneliness, but dress it up as uh, as part of your research, which seems like kind of an Irish thing. It's like, I don't want to trouble you by asking you too much about oh, your, your deepest feelings. This is for, it's definitely for an article. It's a boring work thing, but yeah. tell me yeah. if you feel alone like I do. Yeah. yeah, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry about this, but I just feel a bit lonely. Sorry about that, but. Well, the voice you're hearing today has been heard by millions over nearly two decades as a DJ on BBC Radio before her recent career change to best-selling author. But has Annie McManus got enough about her in the sporting stakes to trouble the leaderboard today? We're going to find out soon. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Our guest on Second Captain Saturday today is the multi-talented DJ, podcaster and author Annie Mack, who left Ireland to pursue her dreams despite achieving the ultimate honour in Irish society of appearing on The Den. It's hard to leave after She'd that. She'd completed Ireland, basically. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Ireland completed it, mate. Perhaps top spot in our greatest non-sports person, sports person table today might be enough to tempt her to come home at last. But where is home, Annie? Oh, you, don't do this yeah. to me. This is torture. <laughs> this is a question you've been wrestling with lately. Yeah, it's a lot. And I think anyone who's left Ireland will agree. Anyone from the diaspora will will really smart at that question. Um, because I think Ireland is always home. Ireland is number one home and I still call Ireland home. And when I think of home, I think of um, my mom and dad's house in Dundrum in Dublin. That's like that's home. And it's the same house that I was born in. I grew up there and they're still there. So it's so kind of solid as that, you know, as a home. Um, But what happens when you have children and they grow up in in, in a new place and their home is there, then you... You, you definitely, you know, I definitely feel like London is also home, but it's a different type of home. It's more superficial. You know, it's the classic home is where the heart is. My heart is in Ireland. It will always be in Ireland. Going back there is something I think about often and wrestle with often. I'm always obsessed with people who've gone back and I'm always like, how is it? What happened? How did it feel? <laughs> um, I know Killian Murphy, the actor, recently moved back. Um I've always wanted to try and interview him, but I think that would be my top question. What was it like moving home <laughs> if I ever did get to? How did you find a house, Killian? It's literally your first and yeah. only question to yeah. Renown, Don't worry about uh, acting. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry about any of that. How is it in Malahide? <laughs> uh, why do you think it's come up, uh, that desire has started creeping in over the last year? Have you, have you interrogated at least why it's happening now as opposed to at other times in your life? Yeah, I think it's definitely what I was talking about with regards to turning 40. I That was like one thing. Then also my kid, my oldest child is 10 and they go to secondary school quite early here. So he will be going to secondary school next year when he's just just 11. And um, that kind of forces you to think, right, you know, if he's going to go there, that's a real commitment. I don't want to pull him out of there when he's 14. You know, you, you have to, you're forced to kind of think about big decisions when you've got children in school. And then my mom it's just, I mean, my par- both my parents are getting older. So it's just a sense of that sense of time being finite and, and, and time with them being finite and it's precious and you want to make sure you get as much as possible. But we do go to Ireland a lot. Like every summer we're over there on the ferry. We are there at Christmas, every Christmas with that, you know, we do, we do do that. And what I've started doing recently, which has been a real revelation actually, is just go over on my own for 24 hours but I'm there without the kids and the time is so quality and precious and you just get to sit around and drink coffee and catch up and and do a jigsaw with your mom and things like that just make a big a big difference in terms of scratching the itch 
Yeah. So, you know, as long as I can afford to do that and I, I will just keep doing that. And I think that will hopefully be enough for now. That's such a lovely idea, because even for a lot of us living at home and maybe living near our parents, if you have kids in particular, you're usually seeing them with the kids. You're possibly not even getting the quality time that you're talking about there. So it's so nice that you just thought, well, it's only a short flight home. I can go and do this and spend some quality time with them. Yeah, it's really nice. As I said, it was a total revelation because you think you're spending time with them with the kids and you are. But like as anyone, most people will know with kids and, you know, grandparents, it's all about the kids. Mm. You know, that's all they're they're obsessed with the children. So it's just kind of like you don't really get a chance to have them properly being relaxed and giving you their full um, attention and vice versa. So, yeah. And it's not, you know what, in a weird way, it's not very often in your life that you talk to your parents peer to peer, you know, like you grow totally. up, you know, you grow up and they're like they're the, the lawmakers, you know, and then you move, you move on and suddenly you you have your own family or whatever. And then it's a different thing. So that that idea of peer to peer talking to your parents is probably something that you don't do just even, not even half enough. It's so true. And I we do st- like when we got in the rhythm of doing it, like I felt like they were quite excited about it, too. And we would be like, OK, what are we going to do when you're home? Like, let's go climb TikTok and then like <laughs> go to the pub. My parents don't really go to the pub. So for them, going to the pub is, is you know, is cool. Mm. So it, it was just 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 being able to use it as a chance to do different stuff for them. And, um, and as you say, just have like long conversations and like get to know them again as mm. older people. And for them to get to know my life, you know, in detail, it's it's really deadly. I'm going home in a few weeks. I can't wait, actually. Brilliant. When you're talking about the wrestling with this idea of of Ireland and potentially coming back, whatever it might be, I don't I don't get the sense that you're totally nostalgic or, or are you? Is there an idea in your head that the grass is always greener over here? Or is it more nuanced than that? I think I'm not like uh, th- there is always that kind of romanticism of Ireland when you live away. You can't help it. It just it just always seems better. And then, you know, you're watching it from a from abroad and you're seeing the country change so rapidly, progressing in a way that is putting other countries to shame with regards to, you know, the referendums and the abortions and the gay marriage and all of that. It's like cheering on Ireland from abroad, you know, and it's especially since Brexit, you know, I I always have this thing, I suppose. And maybe a lot of other Irish people abroad would relate to this of like, well, we always have Ireland. Like we can always just go home. And I say it to the kids, I'm like, if anything, anything happens, we're gone. We're back to Ireland. Just know that. Like, And there's a, a lovely comfort in that, a lovely kind of safety net in that. But I think I, I wouldn't be moving back to Ireland if I ever did on, on, a, on a level of kind of nostalgia. What I would like to do is go back and start again. So I wouldn't move anywhere near where I grew up. I would try and go back and get you know I wouldn't want to go back into that web of everyone knowing you and go your kids going to the school that you went to like you'd have you would have to start fresh and make it feel like somewhere new um and like get to know new people and experience it in a way that you hadn't before the most important question in all this Annie is who are the kids supporting in international football <laughs> for God's sake God it's it's boiling sure, it down it's to sore, it. no 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 but that that really is like that is it boiled down that like that's profound to me when the Euros was on last not two summers ago was it or last so it was last summer last, last summer because yeah. it was delayed yeah that was the women's it, Euros wasn't it yeah yeah it it was a it was a lot for me to see them with the English flags and you know and and the English tops and it was a big conversation because 
my husband was like, they're English. I'm English. Like, you have to accept this. Um, and then they saw how much it irked me. And then they would like double down on it and be mm. like, uh-huh, we're English. We're never Irish. But they do support Ireland when Ireland are playing. And, and they will always support Ireland when Ireland are playing. But, it, you know, I have to accept that they also support England. You know, I gave birth to them in London. It is my fault. <laughs> it's also lovely. Did you say they're bo- you've got boys, is it? I've got two boys. Yeah, and yeah. that they're supporting the the women's team and that they're big into yeah. that, which w- wouldn't have been a thing a few years back. Yeah, like when we watched the final of um, of the Women's Euro last year, we were actually all in Ireland. We were in um, Newquay in County Clare. And we were all in a holiday house there with all of our family and we all watched it together. And I just thought it was so, it was so moving to me to see my kids see women's football as as no, totally normalized in that way on that level and to be cheering them on and to be like so happy when they won. So it kind of, um, it made the fact that it was English football, you know, it didn't matter because it was women's to me. Is it true that you were so inspired by the football team, by, by the women's footballers that you signed up to your son's team as a coach? Yes, <laughs> yes, it's true. So he does like Saturday morning football, just community football. And it's all ages, you know, from under fives under sixes. I think it goes up to under tens. Um, and all the coaches are guys. And there's probably 95% of the players are boys. And it just made me like sad for all the girls who would and could play football in that environment and just don't because they don't see enough girls and all the women who might be coaches. So I I thought I should sign up and I, I've loved it actually. And by signing up as a coach, you end up having to play in goal. So you are, you know, you're fully on the field and you have to show like in the first few sessions, it was like quite important to me to show that I could play. And a couple of the boys were like, oh, well, she can play. Like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, right, I can play. But I, rem- I remember like go- leaving one of the first sessions and one of the fellas like high-fiving me and just feeling so like <laughs> rewarded. Like it's such a nice vibe being able to coach football and it's not something I ever thought I'd do. So It sounds like you've got the bug back for playing. Are, are you uh, considering maybe making a comeback and actually playing for a team? Well, one of the things I've been again, 40 midlife crisis, it was trying to, I really wanted to try and start a women's team. Like I looked into clubs around London. There's loads of amazing clubs. There's a great club with a great name called Goal Diggers in East London. That is all ages, (laughs) goes up to women in their 60s. And it's all, it's very open, inclusive, and it just looks like deadly fun. But because London's so huge, it's like a 50 minute journey to get there and back on the train. And it's just too much. It's too far. So I need to find somewhere closer and there isn't anywhere. So I thought about starting one myself, but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time mm. and I don't have that time currently, but um, I'll, it, it's on my mind. What do you have time for then exercise wise? Because we're trying to build more points now for your the ranking of your sporting mm-hmm. life. So what do you get? Up to I've got my fit? notepad out yeah, here. Yeah, no, it's ready. I can see okay, it. Okay, really. So is that how it works? Like the more exercise you do, the more points you get? Or is that, how <laughs> is the point system? Talk well, listen, it's, I, I'm, I'm going to claim there's not that scientific a basis. The fewer questions oh, you ask about this, Annie, how probably dare you the say that? The algorithm is extremely scientific. I think it would just bore the listeners for me to go too deep into my exactly. process. You don't want to share it. Yeah, you don't want to share yeah. right. sausages made yeah, too right. much. It's quite yeah, muddy, yeah. the process. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's what I would say. That's what I would say. Yeah. But listen, any any bit of exercise helps mystery, I'd prefer, but whatever. Okay, shredded mystery. So exercise-wise now, like I've learned, as we all do in our 40s, that exercise is not something that is about aesthetic goals. It is about staying sane. 
Mm-hmm. And it is is like, so for me, I, I need to exercise in order to feel as good as I can in order for ideas to come. Like if I go for a run, like that's when I'm able to churn out ideas in my head when I'm exercising. But the exercise I do at the moment, and it changes a lot, is the Peloton. My husband bought one secondhand of a friend. Okay, I so no that, that, that's in it. a, it's like an exercise bike, like a, like a very it's an exercise high bike tech with exercise a screen yeah. that you sign into and you have any sort of lessons from yoga to boxing to like hip hop <laughs> dance to like hit cardio, obviously mm. loads of biking. Um, and I'm a boot camp gal. I like, I like, I don't have a lot of time. Give me 30 minutes in the morning. I'll go up and do a boot camp where I'm half dead. And that to me is proficient exercise because it's, it's short, it's sharp, it's furious. Uh, and then I can move on with my day. I don't have the time and the inclination to do kind of low impact exercise like yoga and stuff like that. Cause to me, it's not exercise unless I am dead. <laughs> no disrespect so, to all the yoga enthusiasts. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, I do do yoga sometimes, but I couldn't do that. Like I need, and I'm sure a lot of yoga enthusiasts will say, I'm sorry, but you do sweat and it is really hard work. I just need to do something really like, physical like as in where I'm moving loads you're putting forward a strong case here Annie just before Murph ranks your sporting life we do need to confirm your own sporting highlights I presume it was being put through your paces by Noel King at Lansdowne Road with the write up in the newspaper I have to say like I think it was and there's been other trophies and medals and you know plenty of them after that but that for me was like a was such a big deal (laughs) like 11 years old on Dempsey's Den in the newspapers in Lansdowne Road. Yeah, now, I mean, what's not to love? Your uh, continued playing of Never Mind the Zogabongs, Here's Zig and Zag for about 15 years on BBC Radio 1. <laughs> it all makes sense now. You know, that connection. That we, we were, I was wondering for years. Why yeah, what's she, going on here? What, it was 1992 that album obsession. came out. Why, why did she keep playing that? Murph, the pleasantries are now dispensed with. The real business is at hand. Could you please rank this sporting life of Annie McManus? You don't understand. I could have had class. You don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, Annie, Owen has been stealing you for this moment all day, and it's finally arrived. I must now carefully analyse your all-time sporting highlight. Pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements, and then give you a score out of 100 to see if you can overtake Ender Walsh's 85 points as he desperately hangs on to top spot in our non-sports person, sports person of the year race for 2023. First of all, 10-year-old Annie blazing a trail for Irish soccer players in the early 90s is legitimately deadly. I can't give enough points for that, quite frankly. Playing football for Zig and Zag, obviously huge points getter. Plus, you're actually the first ever contestant on this show to make use of the Noel King ruling, a seemingly incongruous and arcane piece of officialdom, which is nevertheless perfectly clear. You are awarded eight extra points if you've ever met League of Ireland legend Noel King. <laughs> if, if Senator George Mitchell had actually bothered to read the rule book, he could have arranged a sit-down with Kinger and set an all-time points record that would likely never have been beaten on this show. On, but on we go. I will, however, have to deduct points for the sadistic glee you take in going in goals at underage football training and cruelly denying all of your young charges as they attempt to score past you. I'm all for teaching those little under 10 losers what happens when they come at the king, but your total refusal to let in the odd goal so that the children can have some fun does sadly remind me of the no-nonsense Danish netminder and notorious no-crack spoilsport Peter Schmeichel. 
There is, of course, there is, of course, the wider point of submitting to the lure of the nightclub like many a talented young GA player of the past. (laughs) A man in my position can't be seen to be endorsing choosing having fun over the honing of one's athletic sporting craft. It's ruined many a promising career in the past and it will again if I don't act as a bulwark against (laughs) such activities. But all in all, I'd have to say that it's been a very, very solid effort here. I'm going to give you 78 points, enough for joint third... Annie Mack, this has been your sporting life. Happy, you look happy enough there, Annie. I'm very happy with joint third. Delighted. Yes. I've got a medal. Nicely as done. Of now. Well, we've got one more guest, you know. <laughs> okay. Let's not go count okay. to get any chickens. You know, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Annie, it's been amazing. I was about to throw to our next song, but what, what am I doing? I've got doing Annie though? Mack here to show us how it's oh done. Annie, if you wouldn't mind, could you please do us the honour of introducing our final tune of the day? Okay, well, thank you so much for listening to the second captains today. It's been a pleasure to be on. We're going to play you out with the Cocteau Twins classic. This is Lorelei. That's a professional. That's how it's done right there. Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. Lorelei by Cocteau Twins on Second Captain Saturday, expertly introduced by the legendary BBC Radio 1 DJ Annie Mack, who has put herself in the shake-up for a podium finish when the current series wraps up next week. You would have given her a few extra points if you'd ever had to deal with Noel King, Murph, I'll tell you that. You're telling me that you've dealt with Noel King? Ah, this guy does not suffer fools, Murph. In my case, the fool being me. Charity football match, nearly 10 years ago. I had the dubious honour of managing an all-star selection Against the cast of Love Hate. <laughs> my wow. team featured wow. Yeah, my team featured such luminaries as Jason Sherlock, then okay. Minister of State at the Department of Justice and Equality, Aidan O'Riordan. Wow. And Noel King, who was managing the Republic of Ireland under twenty ones at the time. So I was managing the manager, which is never an yes. easy dynamic. We were up against the Love Hate gang, Aidan Gillen, future Academy Award nominee, Barry Keoghan, <laughs> and so on. At one <laughs> po- it was it was the time of Love Hate Murph. At one point I felt we needed fresh legs, so I tried to substitute Kinger. Okay. But he just ignored me. He just ignored me. He moved further and further over to the opposite side of the pitch (laughs) and simply (laughs) pretended he couldn't hear me no matter... No! No! Kinger! Do you like being called Kinger? I don't know, but listen to me. Respect my authority, (laughs) damn it. No, he just totally ignored me and I did what any self-respecting manager would do in a situation like that. I caved and took off the boxer and brilliant or deep pundit Eric Donovan instead. What can I say, Murph? He was closer to me and he's a lovely guy, Eric. He acknowledged my existence and acquiesced to coming off. So, so that's what happened. Noel King stayed on. So he's not an easy man to impress is what I'm saying. Annie's performance in front of Noel King when she was mm. a kid, it was worth an extra 10 to 15 points in my book. It looks like our greatest non-sports person sports person award is going right down to the wire this year. We've got a strong challenger next week. Hold that award, Murph. Don't be handing it out just yet. I don't know. I can't, I'm getting I'm getting itchy hands here. Well, don't. Well, hold, hold on to it. Not only has Michael Sheen portrayed some of the biggest names of British public life on the big screen, rumour has it he was once scouted for Arsenal by the father of club legend Tony Adams in a Pontins holiday <laughs> camp on the Isle of Wight. <laughs> wow. Like I say... I- this is you're bringing me so much news here, Owen. I, it feels like all I've said for the last ten minutes is just wow. The the first Noel King now Pontins. Yeah. What next? Like I say, it's only a rumor, but it does seem weirdly specific. So I'm 
think there might be a grain of truth in it. <laughs> Michael Sheen, it's going to be great. He's on next week. That's all for today. Stay tuned to Radio 1 for a new episode of Doc on 1. This has been a Second Captains production for RTE. The show is produced by Killian Down. Mark Horgan is the series producer for Second Captains. Our thanks to Johnny Lanagan and RTE. We'd love to have a look at secondcaptains.com for all of our daily shows. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you for the final episode of the series next Saturday. Second cap, first cap, and whatever. <laughs>